Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Sixers Draft Podcast. I am your host, as always, Daniel Olinger. Today, joined by Jackson Frank, he of many NBA roles, a writer for Dime Up Rocks, a host of the excellent The House That Hanky Built podcast, which I would all recommend you listening to. Uh, Jackson was not kind enough to have me on last week, and we talked about, uh, I'm trying to remember the four players off the top of my head, uh, Matisse Thibel, George Hill, uh, Tyrese Shake, Shake. and Shake Milton. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for the bench guards, basically. But mm-hmm. I, yeah, that was a great podcast. And today, I mean, obviously, with the name of the show being Sixers Draft, we're going to talk about a prospect like we've been doing so far. And today it's Joel Iai from Gonzaga. I'm really excited for this. Uh, Jackson, how are you excited for it? Uh, I'm excited as well. He's an interesting prospect for sure and excited to, uh, to talk about how he, might, how he might fit on the Sixers. Yeah, so I mean, you covered Gonzaga basketball longer than like a long time and have done a great job with it. Uh, how about you just intro people to who Joel Iai is? Yeah, so he he was, you know, for a while this the they've the Gonzaga has carved out quite a pipeline internationally, especially from Europe. Uh, and he came over uh, as a freshman, really underdeveloped both, you know, physically and skill-wise, mainly physically. So he redshirted his freshman year. Um, he's the same class as Corey Kispert, but he was a redshirt junior last year, whereas Kispert was a senior. Um, and so he redshirted his first year, didn't play a ton in his second year either. Um, but in year, and basically his third year after Gonzaga lost a ton of guys, they lost Brandon Clark, Rui Hachimura, um, Zach Norvell Jr. and Josh Perkins. Uh, there was kind of a lot of unknown and yeah, he stepped up and um, really filled kind of a nice combo guard role uh, along guys like, alongside guys like Ryan Woolridge and Admon Gilder. Uh, and he, he won, he won uh, WCC, uh, most of the player of the WCC tournament, um, you know, obviously that, that was kind of the last last string of games before the season was canceled in 2019, 20 uh, played a lot. Sometimes was on the ball, sometimes played off the ball. Um, that was, that's kind of part of his alerts. He's a very versatile offensive player. At least he was in the college level. Uh, and then this past year, you know, in his redshirt junior season, um, Gonzaga was loaded with talent. They had Jalen Suggs, Corey Kisper is back front of the year. Drew Timmy took a step forward. Um, they added Andrew Nemhard, and so yeah, he played a lot off the ball, but he was great at that. He's a great cutter, um, was really good in transition, playing the lanes. He had this first, his school's first triple double in program history, so um, a really versatile player at the college level who um, made a lot of strides in terms of his reading of the game and was able to kind of make make some strength and you know athletic gains as well um, to kind of merge with his his, his skill level. Yeah, like you said, um, he's not like a super young prospect. He's also for Richard Jr., not super old, uh, about 21 and a half years old, I have it. And like you said, uh, a big thing for him has been adding strength, even though he's he's still a pretty skinny guy at 6'5", 180. Like, definitely, like, that's probably an NBA team gets him. They'll still focus on, like, how can we add some more weight onto him just to, you know, help him hold up against certain players. Um, But, yeah, I think that's, like, you laid it out well there. It's part of the allure of him is just, like, Look at this Gonzaga team this past year. He was often the fourth option on the floor. And, I mean, if you – their lineup of Nemhard, Suggs, Timmy, and Kispert, you could argue is the fifth option at times, at least in terms of, like, receiving the ball in places where he was, like, directed to score. But he just really slotted in well at all of that. Like, he did exactly what you'd want then the fourth or fifth option in your lineup to do. You know, shot pretty well on three this past year, to, better than his uh, – his, uh, first season of real playing time up to 38.9% this year. Um, true shooting percentage of 66.6, which is fantastic. Uh, and like you said, the cutting, which is honestly probably my favorite skill of his, like 
he's just a masterful backdoor cutter. He always is roaming that baseline, looking for little advantages. He's got some, he's got good length, so you get it to him down there. He's a pretty good finisher. He finished seventy six point five percent at the rim. Most of those were assisted, but again, that's just like maybe he's not. He probably is not going to be any type of creator. Or at least like he's not going to create the advantage himself probably at the next level, but he is capable of attacking advantages. And yeah, just someone who I think for a team like the Sixers, where, I mean, obviously season didn't end, but they season didn't end like they wanted to not as much of a contender as maybe they thought themselves to be, but still a very good team, some very good players. He's a guy who can kind of slot into lineups pretty easily. And like you said, that versatility is just so key because for a team like the Sixers, where it feels so often like, some guys can only play in certain lineups and in certain ways. Ayayi's kind of a guy who, yeah, he can fill a multitude of roles. Yeah, I think I think the biggest thing when I look at Ayayi is I'm curious, is there any sort of actual on-ball ability with him? Because mm-hmm. that, that's where that's what will really drive his alert. Because I, I'm confident he's going to be a good spot-up shooter. Um, you know, he, as you said, he shot 39% from three this year. Was a little lower his first couple of years, but ended his college career at 36%, 78% from the line. Good mechanics, really good balance. Um, holds his follow through well. So I'm not worried about like, I don't think he's going to be some guy that like you don't have to guard from the perimeter, but it's a matter of, can he make those strength gains and that kind of and improve his handle to the point where you can trust him to run kind of a, maybe a side pick and roll or a second side pick and roll, you know, when the defense is already a little bit, you know, n- you know, shifted off kilter. Um, and I'm right now, I'm a little skeptical of that, but I, but I, by all means, am I ruling it out? And I think that will be really key for him because as you mentioned, you know, the cutting is there. Like, I mean, he just, I just, as you, like you said, he was basically the fifth option a lot of times in certain lineups for Gonzaga. And he was so great at just, you know, those backdoor cuts along the baseline, especially. Um, and, you know, he shot well from at the rim this year. Of course, a lot of that was assisted. But last year, he shot well, too. Another very good team. But last year, he shot 66% at the rim, 33 of his shots assisted. And so you've seen you've seen a larger self-creation role for him in his, in his redshirt sophomore year. So that's, that's what was so impressive to me about him on the college level that I am a little dubious about, or at least I'm monitoring it from the NBA perspective is he was able to function in a lot of different roles. I mean, like I always think back to, you know, in the WCC tournament when he won most of his players redshirt sophomore year, like he was, he was the guy, like they, they had played a really close game against university of San Francisco. And he was the guy like running crunch time offense for them. He was running pick and rolls, hitting floaters, hitting pull up jumpers from the elbows, things like that. Um, and then, you know, a year later, he is he's largely just a guy who's doing things in transition or, you know, stationed in the corner, hitting spot up threes or cutting to the rim and whatnot and, and grabbing. I mean, one of the things he's a fantastic rebounder for his size. Oh, he's um, really an good. Unbe- unbelievable rebounder um, on both ends, too. Like, right. And it's not it's not just it's not it's not necessarily like the Ennis Cantor Dwight Howard thing where they're mainly really good <laughs> on the offensive glass. Like Joel is, is great at the kind of high, high pointing and pursuing defensive rebounds but he's also great at sneaking in there for, for offensive rebounds and putbacks like I don't have a number off the top of my head but I have to say he probably had at least you know 12 to 15 putbacks this year offensively just by his ability to kind of get into open spaces you know in, in those ways so um that's my biggest you know so there's a lot of things he does well but I really am curious to see can he do anything on the ball because that would really make him a useful player at his size with his off-ball smarts and his likelihood likely ability to to space the floor from deep yeah, like with the rebounding, I, I posted the clip yesterday. That it was I called it the quintessential Joel Joel <laughs> sequence where the Gonzaga gets the ball there in transition. I think Suggs kicks to him after like Suggs got like stopped at the free throw line. He cuts into space, which forces the defense to collapse. Kicks it out to a trailing Kispert, you know, like and I, we can talk about his passing a little bit. I think it's generally good, and he finds Kispert, and then Kispert misses that three, but he just like sneaks in between three taller guys and. 
I don't know how else to describe the size. Like he obviously like at six five has enough size that he's just like not tiny out there. And he does have real I, I didn't see his official wingspan measurement, but I would guess it's pretty plus given like watch watching him play. And then he just has really good timing. Like I just think he understands when the ball's coming off. But it's just something that innately like some players like, oh, I know right when to jump, whereas some guys just mistime it and he seems to have that down. Um, in terms of him scaling up to like more of a just being able to show flashes of on-ball creation like you were talking about. I, I think in terms of the shot, because obviously one thing that comes with that for most players is you have to be able to shoot jump shots off the dribble, which he did not do a ton of. I do think I did see some flashes of just like, if you set a ball screen for him and the defense goes under that ball screen out top, he will like stop like dead legged and pull from three. He is mm-hmm. not like unwilling to do that, which is a good sign just being willing to do that. But it also shows because he has a lot of space on those. He does require a good amount of space, I think, to get his shot off because it is a little – it's not a rapidly quick release. He's pretty set when he gets it. He's not like – he usually doesn't run off of screens or like in, coming – he's just not shooting movement threes. It's like you said, it's mm-hmm. either like open catch and shoot or I take a few dribbles, the defense is backed off of me for some reason, and then I can stop and shoot. Like I'm just speeding that up, becoming a little more fluid could be something. And while his handle like isn't bad, I don't think it's good enough really to like – beat NBA level defenders off the dribble and get to the rim. I, I do think if he could improve in that area, like, cause he also doesn't have a ton of burst, but what he does have is he has really good stride length to the rim. Mm-hmm. I think he really understands once I, like once he would get a kick out pass from like Suggs, he would then beat that close out. And then it's just like one dribble, two steps. I'm at the rim. Cause he understands just how to use his length, which is really a really good thing for him. It's just, that's the kind of thing you just pick like it takes some guys time to pick up on. He already has that down. So you could see like, I'm so I, I wouldn't bet on it, but I see like if so-and-so improvements are made, I see how it can happen. If that makes sense. Yeah. I think you mentioned the handle. I think it's one of those skills that wasn't super problematic at the college level, but I think would be an issue with the, in the NBA level in conjunction with this strength deficit, just the fact that guys can kind of bump him off his spots, really kind of, you know, shake, you know, dislodge him from places he wants to go because his handle is, you know, he's not, he's not a guy who's the ball is going to really like, he can really like extend the ball away from his body. And that's what the best handlers can do. Or even good handlers, like they're comfortable having the ball be, you know, 12 inches from their hip rather than, you know, three inches there. So that's something that I, I'm worried about, but I do think it's, you know, you make a good point about kind of the stride length, his ability to, you know, work off the ball. I think, you know, if like, uh, like, so, like we talk about Suggs a little bit, but like Suggs is someone who could really benefit from watching, uh, Ayi off the ball, and I'm sure he did and whatnot. But just kind of the the difference in how he, like Ayi makes cuts and is willing, to, is always ready to either like shoot the spot up through and the ball swings to him or attack. Something that Suggs definitely benefit from. But that so that's that's a plus for a guy like he because he's going to play off the ball most of the time. And I think I think one thing he did really improve at throughout kind of his two years as a you know rotation player or starter, I should say, uh, is I thought his decision making got better in those couple of years. Like I thought. Early on at times when he was first kind of entering the rotation, because he started his redshirt sophomore year as a bench player before overtaking Admon Gilder. I think Admon had a, he had a couple injuries. He was struggling a little bit. Um, and a guy who was just the more different player. But um, I thought he really improved his decision-making, especially in that one year, but especially in year two. And again, his role changed. He was, he was on the ball much less because they didn't need him to be. They, they ran things through Drew Timmy. They ran things through Andrew Nemhard in the half court, Suggs in transition. And so he was largely a play finisher, whether it was – finishing at the rim or shooting spot of threes or whatnot. But I thought he got a lot better in that role. And that that's encouraging because I think that's the sort of thing that you like you 
you don't always see from guys. Sometimes it can be kind of binary, right? Either a guy is a, is a good decision maker, is a poor decision maker. And a lot of times guys do improve that, but such rapid improvement, I thought, was encouraging for him. And I think does give you some hope if he does, if he is good enough to play a, you know, a secondary or complementary on ball role um, that you could entrust him there and, and whatnot. So again, a lot of it just comes down to his strength and handle improvements and development, because I think that's going to be really key for what he can do. Um, but uh, I, I just, it's tough for me to project, but, I, but I'm a little bit on the skeptical side, but I still do think there's some really interesting really interesting skills he can add as, as an off-ball player. Um, I think it would just be just be some of the Sixers would look at more with with maybe their second-round pick rather than their, their late first. Yeah, and, I mean, especially with a second-round pick, but even with that late first, just at that range in the draft, like, even though we're both saying we're skeptical, he adds more on-ball creation skills. Like, that's just something like, yeah, you're that late in the draft, you're not getting a sure thing creation bet or a high-likelihood creation bet. You know what I mean? Just, like, there's a reason that most of those guys go in the top 15 picks. They're really, really good. So it kind of makes sense to, in that sense. Um, I think like speaking more to like those on the on ball potential, his passing is like, I, I call him a prober in that he kind of like, I think he has a good sense of what to do in terms of passing. Like when he attacks close, if another guy rotates over, he will kick out. He can find those kickouts in transition. He has a tendency, I think to like, he like gets near the three point line. If there's a lot of guys back, he'll like kind of dribble just across the line, looking for guys, looking for trailers. I think he can make some dump down passes and occasional reads. Like generally, just like obviously not some kind of game breaking pass or a guy you are going to trust to manipulate a, an NBA level defense, but a guy who can be entrusted just to. He is not stagnant with the ball. He is not like going to hurt you with bad passes. Generally, I think he's just a pretty good passer. I think about a two to one assist to turnover ratio. Um. One question I wanted to ask you because it came up between me and CJ Marchesani when we did our podcast on Deuce McBride is what do you think would happen if you swapped Deuce McBride and Joel IIE between West Virginia and Gonzaga? Because CJ's big <laughs> argument with Deuce was that he produced, he still produced some decent stats, even if it was on lower efficiency for a West Virginia team where he was asked to be the primary and handle everything. Whereas IIE, you know, has hyper efficient stats but he did get to play in a situation, you know, that very few college guys who are going to get drafted have where he was playing next to like, I mean, a top, probably a top five pick in Jalen Suggs, a first round pick in Corey Kispert, a, well, probably not an NBA level prospect, a very good college player in Drew Timmy and, you know, another really good college level guard in Emhart, you know, like I'm saying, just July got to play in the situation where he like, his role projection in the NBA level is as the fourth or fifth option in a lineup. And that's probably what, that's what he got to do in college, which is very beneficial thing for him in a sense. So which like, if you swap those two, if you, July was forced to be the primary for a college offense like West Virginia, what do you think would happen? Yeah, I think, I think he would struggle more than, than Deuce did because even though Deuce has some burst concerns, he has a much more refined pull-up jumper just in terms mm-hmm. of release speed and ability to get that shot off. Um, and so I, like, I think – and Deuce is smaller too. I mean, like Deuce has, a, has good length. Yeah. Um, I did want to did want to follow up. You mentioned the length. I found Draft Express as of 2017, so that was you know, four-plus years ago. Mike Schmitz has it as six, seven and a half. So I'd imagine it's probably somewhere maybe an inch, inch and a half, inch inch longer. So plus plus wingspan, as you said, like notably plus um, for him. He's, they have him at six, three and a half. Maybe he's a little taller than now, maybe six, five in shoes. But um, point B is looking at probably a three and a half to four inch plus wingspan there. 
Um, but I think Deuce would fare better because as good as Gonzaga was, I think they could have used a little more. Um, like you saw in that game against Baylor when they, when they lost the national title game, uh, they just like they were out athleted. Like that, mm-hmm. that was the biggest thing is like they just like guys like, you know, Davion Mitchell and, and Mace T.O.T. And, and Jared Butler or Mark Vidal or Jonathan Shamachachua, I believe I pronounced that name correctly. Um, we're just, we're just better athletes. And I think Deuce is a pretty good athlete, even though he has some burst concerns. Like he's got the length. He's, he's really good with change direction and, and lateral mobility. Um, and so I think he, they would have benefited from that because Deuce in a small, like Deuce in that were in a, a Yai's role. Like they would have had to, they would have had to change some things around because Deuce is a lesser passer. He's not, he's he hasn't shown the off ball smarts like a Yai. He hasn't played a role like that, but um, I, I can't just say he's going to be as good an off ball player of a Yai as a Yai because that's an X. Like he's a Yai is superb there. Um, but I think Gonzaga would have been better. And I think, I think, got, maybe, I don't, maybe, I don't know. It's tough to say for sure, it, it's but a I tough feel, question. but I think Deuce is just a better talent. And so I feel like that's, he would see, I just feel more comfortable about him scaling there, but I certainly think Ayayi would struggle more in the league creation duties than, than uh, Deuce did just because his pull-up game isn't there. And he doesn't, he also doesn't have the burst, doesn't have the strength. Like, I don't think he's really compensating in any other skill to make up for the, the divide and, and pull-up shooting between the two of them. No, that, that point you made about Gonzaga being out-athleted against Baylor is like exactly right. I actually rewatched that whole game this morning and it was just, uh, it's actually probably my most famous tweet is when I said what Baylor was doing to <laughs> Drew Timmy and Corey Kispert. I mean, it was just ruthless. Like here, Drew Timmy, Corey Kispert, you switch on a Butler, you switch on a Davion and it's it's time to dance, but yeah, it, it got pretty rough. Um, And yeah, I even thought like, I think that can transition to IIE's defense, which I'm curious what you think about it. I I didn't love it in all the games I watched. I, I mean, going back to that Baylor game, like I thought they had sometimes he was guarding Alan Flagler and he had some trouble just like quick bird. He got backdoored a few times pretty bad. Um, I also, I also, it's one concern. I, I don't know if it's a concern, but just I try and think about it where watching these defenses at the college level, Gonzaga switched a lot. And that is just mm-hmm. something the Sixers don't do because when you have Joel Embiid on the floor, you're playing, you're chasing over a ball screen and Embiid's and drop because no one wants to go near Embiid at the rim usually, which makes sense. Like Embiid's going to get the priority in terms of defensive coverage generally. Um, and I, I didn't love IIE screen navigation. Just generally it, it goes back to the same thing with the handle and the power that you were saying offense. Just, I feel like he, when a guy can like dip his shoulder into him, if IIE is not in front of him, he's not going to affect him too much because then just, he's just going to get overpowered and that's going to, that can continue at the NBA level. Now, I do think he has a decent, knack, pretty good knack for like deflections and again using that length, stunts off ball. Like I don't think he's a really bad defender or a harmful defender, but I'm, I, I don't see him and think like, oh, here's a guy who will be a plus defender pretty quickly in the NBA. Yeah, I think, I think he still has some things to improve with his off ball awareness and as you mentioned on the ball because of, uh, you know, kind of the strength, the strength and whatnot, screen navigation. But I do think he's a pretty flexible player which mm-hmm. I think helps for screen navigation. Like, like I'm, I don't want to like pick on a guy, but you look at a guy like Lonzo Ball, he, he struggles with screen navigation because he's not very flexible. Um, and I think he is really flexible. And there are other guys who, who are, I'm not trying to attack Lonzo as a player overall, but there are, and there are other guys that same way, but just kind of a, a good kind of proxy for the difference in flexibility there. So I think there's at least, if he can make some strength gains to not necessarily be so alarmed or caught off guard by the initial contact, he should be fairly suitable there. Um, and, but yeah, I think, like, I think he is good at playing passing lanes and making some rotations, but I think he really can struggle um, with some of the more complex things. Like if he's forced to make a decision between two mm-hmm. guys, 
he'll struggle there. Uh, if he's trying to maybe toggle between man and ball, and you know, I think he can struggle there. So I, I tend to lean toward him projecting him as like a as a negative defensively, but I think it could get to a point where he's pretty fine. Um, but by no means do I think he's going to be some like really plus player defense. Like, I think he's, if he's going to be someone he can really buy into as a rotation, you know, wing slash guard, it'll come because of his versatile offense, not because I think he's really going to be a guy you, you put out there for defense. Yeah, I, I agree with that sentiment that I think offense is more of the sell with them. But I always do like to bring back, like, he's a guard with decent size. And as long as you, like, clear a certain height threshold and, like, have a general sense of what you're doing, you are playable at the NBA level, which I just think that's important. Um, I also do think if you're trying to, like, think positively about his defense, he he has a tendency to, like, dig into the post and try and, like, cause stuff. And they can get caught for mistakes like that. But I also think part of that could be built in the fact that his defensive center, the center he's playing on defense with was Drew Timmy, who, you know, great college player, not exactly a defensive stopper. He probably, maybe he was thinking like, I need to do something here to affect this. Cause I want to, he's like, I, I, I like the idea that he's trying to make something happen on defense in that sense. And maybe he takes less risks or makes less of those decisions. If you're playing next to Joel and and you're like, Oh, he's got this. Yeah. I think that's, that's important. Yeah, for, for as good as Timmy is, he's still, Still lacking defensively, and especially kind of with the, the length and strength combo, I think Timmy can struggle there against some of the best centers or the other best centers. I should say, obviously, he's one of the best. Um, but he didn't play power four this year, which at home from there, but, but that's a different story. Um, but yeah, I think I think that's that's true as well. I do think, generally speaking, he is better when he is empowered to be active, and so. Um, but I think at the same time, that's that's kind of what you can do with Joel with with Joel and Bead back there. We have we'd have two Joels in the team if, if the Sixers uh Sixers drafted Joel. That would yeah, be he'll, something. He'll be called II more often. But... <laughs> yeah, we'll call we'll call him the IA. But uh but but I think my point being there is if Embiid is is kind of your your backline enforcer, you can be empowered to take more risks. And that's where I think Joel is best off the ball. Or excuse me, Ayai is best off yeah. the ball. Um is when he's able to kind of use his length and some of his and some of the times when he when he is very aware off the ball is, is, is those risks and whatnot. So I think that would be a good fit defensively. But overall, I do think with the, the strength deficit and the kind of the concerns navigating screens and the and the the inability to truly parse the screen ability, navigation ability because of how often they switch things um, and how how much how like I would say what's you can be you can be very kind of slow to switch things in college because a lot of guys just aren't capable of beating you offensively. So if there's a if there's a gap or there's space presented, you can't, you're not always going to think the defense is going to beat you, but in the, in the NBA, of course, the defense, the offense will beat you if you concede all that space on a switch or whatever. Um, but yeah, I think that's a good point, but I also think it plays into a Yai's fit because you can feel comfortable that Embiid will hold things down if a Yai tries to, you know, make gamble for a passing line steal or on a stunt or things like that. So um, I do think he's at his best, you know, kind of, you know, enabled to, to be kind of a bit of a roamer and, and risk taker. Mm-hmm. And like you said, just, I mean, a good example, I'll go back to that game again in the Baylor-Gonzaga championship. Like you could see, Gonzaga made some mistakes defensively and Baylor did what an NBA team would, would do, which is you make a mistake, we are going to punish you for it. Like you do not get off scot-free because you boggled that switch for a second. Like Jared Butler's then snaking that. I think there was one play like I.I. like reacted to a screen too late and he just chased over. Jared Butler like uh, put him in jail behind him and then suddenly it's a two-on-one at the rim. It was a problem. Like that's the kind of stuff that happens at the NBA level where just you can't 
be caught lacking. Like, and obviously, I think it's something you can improve, but it's just you have to factor them, especially for a team like the Sixers, who think of themselves as contenders. Like, that's a flaw that you probably have to work on. Um, and then going to like his overall fit with the Sixers, I would be curious what you thought. Like, I mean, we spent all that time talking about bench guards, and that's one of the reasons I generally want the Sixers to look at a guy with a little more size at like a spot like at with the 28th pick in the draft. I talked with PD Webb about Kessler Edwards on this show and just saying how Kessler can kind of slot into that stretch four role off the bench really perfectly in my mind. And while he does have some size, like we said about six, five and shoes, he is pretty much in at their guard. You can classify him as a wing, but he's not bringing a ton of size. So I'd be curious how you think about him with the Sixers there, just in terms of, I, I just worry about like, you can only play so many small players off your bench. Yeah. I think you kind of want those wings with size. You don't compromise spacing. Yeah, you'd have a lot of slender, slender with yeah. size with with George Hill, Shake Milton, Matisse, style. I mean, like I mean, Tyrese Maxey would be your strongest guard, and Maxey is is quite strong for a six two, six three guard. But Maxey uh, has no flaws. We're not allowed to discuss. <laughs> well, no, of course that's yeah, that's what I'm saying. But my my point is functionally, he would be your strongest guard, and he's yeah. he's small. He's a smaller guard, so that that would be tough. But so yeah, I. That's why I like if I'm ta- like I don't think I I just don't think it makes a ton of sense given where the Sixers are picking. Like I don't I think there'll be better options at, at 28, and I don't think he'll last a 50. Nor do I think he should. Like I think he's a pretty good mid second round guy, uh, maybe mid maybe you know early second as well. But I just think they they don't need they don't need a guy with with skill who lacks strength. You know, like they have enough enough of the like Shake has lack strength and he has skill. Um, Matisse lacks strength. And, and offensive skill, but as a tremendous defensive player. So I, I just, I, I get kind of, I think it would be awesome to have a guy with that little off ball IQ around, you know, the guy like a Joel Embiid or Tobias Harris and, and Ben Simmons or whoever else, you know, is involved in whatever happens with the Ben Simmons, you know, ordeal. Um, so I get that allure of it. And I think, you know, having another guy who can shoot the ball in space of floor would help, but I just don't think it makes sense because I, I think they need more on ball creation I don't think a guy yeah, can really give that off the bench, given the fact that I expect Doc to continue playing, you know, bench heavy lineups. I don't think you would feel comfortable with the kind of the creation around you all. I think or with around a guy, I think you'd really be asking to do a little too much there. Um, and so it just ultimately doesn't make sense. And you mentioned Kessler words. He's a guy that I've really been intrigued by for a long time, covering the WCC. So he's someone that I, I certainly would, would prioritize over a guy. Um, I think it makes a lot more sense uh, with kind of what the Sixers need off the bench and kind of what, I think you and I have talked about a little bit at times, just they need more size and strength off, off the bench. And Kessler gives that to him, whereas EIE doesn't, even if he does offer a lot as an off-ball scorer and player. Yeah, I mean, the episode I did of PD hasn't dropped yet. It, it'll very soon this week. But, I mean, it was basically us both saying how much we love Kessler for most of the potties. <laughs> I think a very good prospect. Uh, Absolutely. I, do think, I do think that, like, the appeal of EIE is just because He's just a fun prospect to kind of look at in terms of you see the off-ball smarts, you see like the low usage, only 16.4% and how we talked about how versatile he is, especially offensively, just how you can slot him in to anywhere. And that's, I mean, something the Sixers could use, but again, just the lack of size and strength is really a problem. I'm, I'm trying to think if the Sixers took him like one role, role you could possibly see for him is like, I think say like you keep the force, let's say they don't trade Ben Simmons, which Big if, especially if the report's coming out of the athletic today. Um, but uh, let's say ben, the they still have Ben Simmons, Seth Curry, Tobias Harris, Joel Embiid all out there. And for some reason you take Danny Green out, like 
he kind of slots in as that very smart off ball mover. Like I can just imagine how frustrating it would be to be an opposing guard where you have to deal with all Danny Green's like slow jogs along the baseline to the corners. And then suddenly you're like, you might think you might get a break from that. And now you have one of the best backdoor cutters probably when he enters the league, all just stepping in right away. I mean, I kind of see that like just the smart off ball movement again, that wing wing slash guard defense able probably to guard positions. I don't know. Would you say I could probably guard positions three through one and a half in the NBA? Yeah, I would say certain one and a half. What one? That's not even a position. I get a certain certain matchups of those combo guards. If the um, if the point guard is bad, you can guard them. Yeah, and I think I think with with a guy you don't like, you don't want him guarding kind of one one of your two best one of the two best opposing perimeter creators. Um, I just think in terms of because of the the equestrian lateral mobility in conjunction with the size deficit, um, it would be very tough for him. Um, I do think you want him off the ball most, most often. Um, but I think, you know, right now the Sixers are currently constructed. He would be off the ball because you'd have either, you have guys who are better suited to good defend on the ball, whether it's Ben Simmons, T. Seibel, George Hill, um, Tyrese Maxey. Um, so I, I don't think you'd worry a ton there, but I, but I think you have a little, some positional versatility defensively for sure with his length and, and height there. Um, but it'd be a guy that you, that you would like want the offense to funnel touches through rather than someone that like the offense prefers to, to run, run things through, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Um, so yeah, I think we're both in agreement that well, while we both like IIE as a prospect, he's probably not the best pick for the Sixers. Um, I would say at 28, like if somehow he falls all the way to 50, I think that's a much different proposition. Like that's where I think mm-hmm. value wise you take him. Like, would you agree with that? Yeah, for sure. At 50, like, I mean, and I, I should preface that, like, I haven't done anywhere close as much draft work as I did last year. Like, I've, I've a lot of my stuff has come from what I watched early in the year, and then I feel like I have a pretty good read on the top of the guys in the top four or five. Um, but I, I do think because I watched the yeah, a lot last year, and I've watched them all, all both both years that he's been at Gonzaga, of course, because I watched you know, most of Gonzaga games this year, um, just being you know, having covered the team and also you know being an alum at this point. Um, and so I think at 50, that certainly makes sense. That's not to be like try and entirely discredit my opinion on this, but I just want to preface for anyone listening that like I'm by no means so I feel as confident in my draft opinions this year as I did last year in 2019. But uh, at 50, yeah, I think it makes sense because I but like because you're just not you're not going to get like an on ball creator or like a wing with plus plus size you can trust offensively at 50 most likely. Like it just just doesn't happen. So I think at 50, it certainly makes a lot more sense. But at 28, I think that they should be looking elsewhere and. Um, Yes, because again, they need more size and on the wing, uh, you know, off the bench, and I don't think a guy he quite brings that. Even if, even if he is a pretty versatile offensive player, and I think he's shown an ability to to don multiple caps offensively. Even if, even though I still remain a bit a bit dubious about his on ball creation, at least at least from the outset in the NBA, I think maybe get there with with some strength and handling development. But, but right now, I don't think it's the, the role he should be playing offensively. I want to finish on this just because it just came to me now. And I think it's an interesting question. I know this is the Sixers draft podcast, but trying to think of better fits for him. Imagine Joel II in Denver where you have Jokic, he, his cutting cross Jokic's passing and he doesn't <laughs> compromise their spacing. I think at all. And he could even flash some on ball stuff. Like I think that would be like a perfect place for him. Yeah. I like that. I like Brooklyn as well. Um, Brooklyn is the 27th pick, Denver 26. Like, I think, I don't know exactly if that's how high I would take EI, but I think conceptually those fits make sense. Like just teams that have kind of an abundance of on-ball creation. I mean, uh, you would need, 
with Denver, you would be you'd, the fit would make a lot more sense once Jamal Murray returns. Obviously, that might not be until a uh, yeah, sophomore season. Um, but you know, assuming maybe Michael Porter Jr. takes another step forward, uh, I like that fit a lot. Again, I also like the Brooklyn one. I like him in Phoenix too. Um, like maybe even in Utah to an extent. Like I think I think there are a lot of fits um, kind of in that late first, maybe early second as well that makes some sense. Um, but yeah, I think Denver would be great, assuming you know Jamal Murray comes back and is the level of kind of on-ball career that he was pre-injury yeah I mean yeah obviously I don't think it's perfect especially like you said without Jamal Murray there the first year but I mean you look at I'm sure Denver would take it given given what they had to do with their guard rotation in the playoffs this year without Jamal like I mean I'm pretty sure Joel I would get more minutes than Marcus Howard did this past postseason (laughs) it's not even a slight like Marcus Howard honestly for what he was how much they were asking of him did okay it's just Mm -hmm. Denver really like I'm still sad about Denver, man, because they were going to be my pick them in the finals before yeah. the injury struck. They were so, so good, those 10 games when Gordon first got there, and they still mm-hmm. had Jamal. Like, just – they were so good. Yeah, and even if you want to get into the second round, like, you know, New Orleans has a couple of picks in the top 40 there. Like, I think, a, like, a smart, good off-ball player alongside Zion makes sense. Brooklyn has the 44th pick. Um, you know, Atlanta has the 48th pick. Like, I, I we think – We can't are, let like, them get I, to the Hawks. The Hawks cannot have more great wings. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I think those are some fits as well. So like, I like some of the late first, you know, positions as well for him. Like Tankathon has a guy he mocked 29th in the sun. I think that makes sense. Like, I, I don't know if I like, I like they have him above Trey man. I wouldn't take him above Trey man. Um, but I think there are some fits there, but especially kind of that, that early to, to mid second, I think also makes sense for him that even extends down to the 50th pick with the Sixers. So um, I, I feel pretty confident that, Joel will go to a place that is suitable for his skill set, or he'll go to a place where he's kind of a value play. Um, and so I think he's in a pretty good spot when it comes to this draft. I agree with all of that. And I think that's going to wrap it up for us today. Uh, Jackson, uh, thank you so much for doing this with me. It was fun to talk about a guy. I think that's just one of the more, maybe, I don't know if aesthetically pleasing is a good word to describe watching him. Mean, just that's reasonable. That's, yeah. I think that's certainly a reasonable uh, label for him. I mean, just for, if you're a hoop nerd watching all the smart backdoor <laughs> cuts, the, those, like we said, those smart and calm passes to some really good stuff. Uh, and yeah, Jackson, thank you so much. Uh, plug away. What do you got for the people? Yeah. Um, I mean, honestly, the easiest way is you can find all of my work, my Twitter bio on Twitter at Jack Frank underscore JJF. I'm doing a lot of playoff coverage still over at Dime Up Rocks, uh, The Analyst. I'm doing doing Spotify green rooms about the Sixers uh, three times a week that I'm also using as, as a house the Hanky built podcast. So um, tons of fun stuff coming for me, both as the season, the season winds down, but as the offseason picks up. So appreciate you having me on, Daniel. I always, always enjoyed talking about uh, guys, especially ones, you know, as much as I enjoyed talking about J- Jalen Suggs, it's fun to talk about a different prospect for a, for a change of pace in this draft cycle. Yeah, I mean, it's just Gonzaga is a really good team. It's They have a lot of fun guys to talk about. Uh, we could honestly talk about so many players from their team, but yeah, always fun talking to you, Jackson. Please follow Jackson and all of his work. He just does really great stuff on the NBA, on basketball as a whole. Can't recommend it enough. And please, if you could, subscribe to the Liberty Ballers podcast feed, rate, review, all that good stuff. Really appreciate it. And thank you all for listening.